Welcome to episode 103 of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined for the 103th time by my dear friend Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. Hello, Ben. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. And yourself? Doing pretty well. I'm leaving for Rome at the end of the week, so I feel like... Jealous. I know, I know. But I feel like I'm going to be there for nine weeks this time in Europe, so I feel like I'm at the edge of a cliff. Holy crap, you're not coming home after the French? Nope. Oh my goodness. I know. Oh my calendar, goodness. Calendar screwed me here. Yeah. Like I feel like two weeks was definitely I was gonna stay over. Three is just just where it becomes debatable. So for me. That's so. impressive that you're going over for Rome then. It, because if I knew I had to be there for nine weeks, I probably would just go to straight to Paris. I know, but I want to eat some mozzarella. Well, trust me, I'm like I said, I'm very jealous. It's the first year I ha- won't be in Rome since 2011, maybe I know that's 2010. Your hood. Yeah, that's my joint. But family comes first. So in the meantime, Madrid is going on, but we're going to look back further than that to what happened last week. What was a slow week, but a weirdly star-studded week or a star-hosened week, or whatever you want to call it. And it was star-hosed. <laughs> star-hosed. And, and then we talk about the women, too. Lots of little things there. And then we'll take a bunch of questions and talk about current events and whatnot. And then we have a guest, Eric Buderak, Player Council President for the ATP, who talks about all sorts of issues on tour and gives a sort of pretty good lay of the ATP land, I think. So we'll wrap up the show with that and let's get started in the meantime. Are you ready, Courtney? Always. All right. So it was supposed to be a pretty slow week last week, a bunch of small tournaments, but we wound up getting two super high profile champions in Roger Federer and Andy Murray winning in Istanbul and Munich, respectively. Andy Murray getting later hosened in the end, which it just was so strange to me that they like made him change his pants as part of a trophy ceremony and had like a privacy screen. Yeah, that's the thing. I've like, never not seen even, anything like that. It wasn't even that they made him change his shorts on court. It's that they were all planned out. Like they were like, don't worry, we've created this little tent for you to go and change in. Peculiar. Um, and those were some snug leather shorts, it must be said. I don't think those shorts were, I think those shorts were designed more for Cole Schreiber <laughs> than they were for Murray. <laughs> Murray's got big He's, legs. Yeah, and... He's got, you know, there's just a lot of a lot of things going on there. And I, I just think that those later hosen were really put to the test, the stitching at least. Okay. Just so saying. Andy Murray winning a clay title, is that a significant monument in tennis ha- happenings? Does it matter? I don't think anybody's shocked. I mean, the dude's won, made two French semis. He clearly can hit the ball on dirt. Exactly. I think that the, the whole stat about how he had never made a clay final before, so much of that is skewed towards the fact that, typically speaking, he's either playing uh, Masters tournaments on clay or 500s in Barcelona where Rafa and Ferrer are playing there anyway. So it's not yeah. like it was like a total failure on his part. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's... He wasn't the Kornikova of clay. Yeah, exactly. He didn't suck on the stuff, you know. So, um, so yeah, but I mean, a very nice win for him. I think, importantly, just to be able to get through what was a very tricky week with all the rain delays and everything and all of the on-court drama with Lucas Rosal and doing it all with Jonas Bjorkman in Bjorkman's first tournament with Murray. That was, you know, I think a, a confidence-building week. And, and who knows with Andy Murray? I still, I think I said this to you at some point during the Australian Open. Like, what would what would happen if, like, through after all of this, Andy Murray totally trolls tennis and gets the French Open title before Novak? 
it would be amusing. <laughs> he would be so trollish. So trollish. I'm not sure. I don't see it happening. No, I but don't. But if it did, I would yeah, be amused. It could be interesting. Sure. <laughs> it would be amusing for sure. Let's talk about the Rosal trolling because we do love a bit of on-court drama. Andy Murray sort of snapped at Lucas Rosal after a, a Sperlean bump on the changeover, uh, getting very personal very quickly, uh, shouting across the court that, you know, no one likes you, Lucas. Everyone hates you. What, what were your thoughts on Andy's little, I don't know what you call that. Outburst? Little, yeah, little, little outburst, let's call it that. Um, I mean, I thought it was funny. I mean, it could not, because he said it so deadpan and straight-faced and not like, even angrily. He just was, like, stay, saying it as a matter of fact. Like, like as a reminder, Lucas, no one likes yeah, you. Exactly. Kind of Everybody, yeah, exactly. No one likes you on tour. Everybody hates, everyone hates you. Like, it's kind of just, in its simplicity, the ultimate burn. You know? <laughs> like, just like, yeah, no one likes you. Like, oh, shit. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's not like... I mean, we saw this with Murray back um, in January at the Australian Open with Burdick and all that. I mean... He doesn't have a problem letting letting it loose when he kind of thinks he's right. <laughs> no, I, guess. I completely so... agree. I mean, like Murray Murray has more vintage WTA instincts in terms of like catfightiness than anybody on the WTA has right now. So true. I mean, he he's he's so willing to throw down. Yes. You know, if there's like if he's if, if provoked, he will not hide his feelings. No, not at all. And, and the whole. And he said as much like in, um, yeah, I mean, he said as much in an interview uh, after that match where he said, you know, my dad, he's like, I probably shouldn't said what I said. But at the same time, like I was taught growing up, like, you know what, if somebody pushes you, you push back or you stand your ground. And so I don't really have a problem with it, but uh, it definitely made for an amusing moment. And I think somebody tweeted that, like, you know, with Andy Murray's outburst uh, against Russell, it just proves that the ATP is way more mean girls than the WTA is. Agreed. Which kind of, yeah, like this year. Yeah, totally. Totally. Right? Like handshake gate aside or handshake get in, whatever. Like that aside, (laughs) like it has been a very snippy uh, ATP four seasons, uh, four months of the season. I would agree. Even going back to World Tour Finals, oh, you want to yes. all that stuff. Yeah, correct. So yeah, the boys have been creating some drama. Ladies, you need to catch up because this is your scene. It really is. You know, is. I like my WTA with drama. I do. I know. Federer wins in Istanbul, not super convincingly. Really, he had a few tougher than expected <laughs> matches against players like Jimeno Traver, but he wins a clay title. He's now won in like 19 countries or some weird stat. Anything new with Roger? I don't think so. I think this is even less surprising and noteworthy than Andy winning, personally. I would agree. Yeah. So that's that. <laughs> good for you, Roger. Who won in... Uh, it was Gasquet won in Estoril. He hasn't won much lately, so good for him. He beat first-time finalist Nick Kyrgios, who survived after his ball abuse near escape, which we talked about in the last show, um, in his first round against Ramos Vignolas. That's pretty much the men. Yeah. Anything else? I mean, Kyrgios making it... It's good that Kyrgios showed he can play some on clay. Yeah, we didn't know that. No, I didn't know that, and I'm I'm excited to see what what he can do. I mean, today, um, he he beat Jimeno Traver, 
um, in the first round, sets up a second round match against Roger Federer in Madrid. So that should be fun. And who knows? I mean, it's Roger on clay. It's curious. I mean, who knows? But it should be good clay for curious. It's fast clay. Exactly. Exactly. So that should be fun. And um, yeah, I mean, he's he's very close. If he can do something relatively okay in Madrid and Rome of, of getting a French Open seating, which would be um, massive for him. So I'm curious to see what he can do on this stuff. I mean, it'd be, it'd be fun to kind of get him into the mix. That's for sure. Yeah, I think he's probably already almost guaranteed a Wimbledon seating with the formula. Mm. You think with his grass success last year, you're right. So he should be—he's doing well for himself, young Nicholas. Speaking of young people, let's switch to the women. It was a great week for young women with Pliskova and Svitolina winning. Courtney, you had a stat about this, I believe. Oh yeah, I mean, I just think that it's interesting that you know, for all of the headlines that so many of the other quote, young rising WTA rising stars get, uh, you know, whether it's Bouchard, Stevens, uh, Keys, Robson, uh, Vekic, um, Muguruza, mm-hmm. Bencic, Kanyu, like, all, you know, all this whole slew of players. I think combined, like that whole list of players I just named, they've won uh, maybe four titles combined. Uh, Pliskova and Svitolina now have a combined seven. Yeah. So, you know, Svitolina especially is totally under the radar. Exactly. So, so that's pretty darn impressive. And, you know, because at the end of the day, yeah, I mean, they haven't done anything massive at the majors and probably that's why they don't get, uh, you know, they haven't had the big win, the big signature win that, that, or signature run that you can point back to, but Hey, you know, when it comes down to it, they can win four or five matches a week. And a lot of other players haven't proven they can. So that's pretty darn impressive and uh, and very cool, I thought, for Karolina Pliskova after just a tremendous first three months of the season to kind of return home to her hometown of Prague and win that tournament and, and really, you know, kind of show the Czechs back home. Yes, like I am like one of the top Czech players. And after Petra, it's probably me. That's that's pretty good. And, and I think that that'll that'll do good for her confidence going into the clay because she didn't really she kind of tailed off a little bit after that crazy massive first couple of months of the season so you want a stat here's a stat in Prague the Czech players and there were eight of them I want to say in the draw or let's however many there were didn't lose to anybody except for other Czech players kapow all of the Czechs defended home turf in Prague and they're in a comeback you know re-debut tournament there in Prague hadn't been on tour last few years and they did it they got three in the semifinals it was a Pliskova Rudechka final and the Czechs doing big things on the rising star front we had a question from ahmed mahmoud who asks uh, who says he has a slight rant here so let a guest rant come early in the show he says what's up with the wta website writers carolina pliskova at the age of 23 is a wta rising star while belinda benchich at the age of 18 is also you guessed it a wta rising star sloan stevens is still a wta rising star what the heck is the criteria for putting that label on a player and i guess i will first say this is a totally made-up label so I would get too worked up about it because it's, a, it's semi-meaningless. It's a marketing but, thing. Yeah. It's an ability to be able to say, you know, here's a player that you may not know. You know, like if you take it exact, especially from like if you're trying to like. So, for example, like for Sports Illustrated, some of the stuff that I write, obviously, I'm super into tennis and the minutia and, you know, kind of the smaller stories. But I do recognize that I'm trying to write for a broader audience. And in that way, you're trying to hook people into caring about yeah. what somebody what a player that they've never heard of who is not from their own country may have done that week. And so to the extent that you can kind of like package it as 
this is one this is a player to watch this is a player who's doing things this is a player who's on the up and up like whatever it is whatever narrative you can build around the person and who's a star yeah who's, who's a star or a potential like get on the bandwagon like this person could be a future grand slam champion number one blah 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 then that you know helps kind of the the hook in a way so i think it, with the wta yeah it's a marketing scheme it's a way to package the players as being you know rising stars but at the same time conceptually aren't they i mean i know that like pliskova's ranked whatever 14th and svitolina obviously has been winning for a while and sloan obviously is was once career high 11 and um but i i can try to think i don't think they refer to genie as a rising star anymore do they yeah, probably not. Yeah, she's Genie's a star. Already made it. Like yeah, she's, she's made an established it. top tenner, slam final. Who has name no recognition? It's not just yeah. about the resume; it's about name recognition. And so I think that that's the thing, right? Like, so if you have all these players who like still maybe don't have the name recognition, then maybe they're more inclined to throw the rising star label on them. I don't think it's necessarily a an age issue. Although I think that once you hit like twenty four, twenty five, I think probably you're not a rising star anymore. Yeah, I was talking to a player last year, who, and players do notice these things. I mean, players do go on, like, the WTA website all the time um, and check rankings and pages and activity and draws and scores, whatever, you know, all the fun features of the WTA webpage. And they do notice things like that. I remember one player I was talking to last uh, summer was sort of upset that she was no longer being referred to as a WTA rising star when she was only 23. Mm. And that was Anastasia Pavlyuchenkova, who... I had never associated with that label because she, you know, she made a, what, like a slam quarterfinal in like 2010 mm-hmm. or nine or something. I mean, in, she's been around. Indian Wells semifinal in 2009. With that, that, was, yeah. that was her big breakout run. So it's hard to say that she's still rising when she's, first of all, plateaued, which is. Yeah. I mean, point. I guess but that's also, kind of a funny issue too. Is like, what happens? If, like, are you rising if you're rising out of your slump? You're still young. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's still young. 23. Yeah. She's a tough, she's a tough call. But it would be weird. Like, I think that for all of us, it would be weird if, like, we saw, like, Rising Star of the Month, like, nominee, like, Anastasia Pavlyuchenkova. I think I'd have, like, way more of an issue with that than any of the ones that they've thrown in before. Yeah. Like, at least with all the other ones, I've, like, seen the argument for it. Even with Sloan, I see the argument. She's still young and, you know, rising. Only really made her breakout in 2013. Yeah. Which is still pretty recent compared to Pavs, for yeah. sure. Yeah. And Pavs was, like, a teenager, so... Not everyone can be rising, but also, you know, it's okay. Yeah, I wouldn't lose. I wouldn't lose sleep over over the WTA's designation of things because if you do, you're not going to sleep too much because it'll begin and end with how tournaments are 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 categorized, and it's just you know just go with it for now. (laughs) Just (laughs) WTA, just just go. Just (laughs) Just, you know, just go with it. It's all right. It's all right. It'll be okay. We got a question, another question, speaking of sort of outside people, in a different way, from Alyssa J, who asks us, of the players ranked outside the top 20, 25 or so, who do you think has the most potential to peak or zone for two weeks and snatch a Grand Slam title? Or even make a final? Not necessarily to back it up at all, but just to have a miracle run. If a run like that did occur, which slam do you think is most likely to happen at? So, who can be the star who rises out of nowhere, Courtney? Um, Uh, Men's and women's, who do you think... I'm going to look at the rankings here, but who do you think has the potential to zone? I mean, outside of the top 20 for two weeks in zone, I mean, the easiest pick right now, because it's kind of just a technicality that she's not in the top 20, is Azarenka. 
Mm. You know, I mean, I think just because, you know, she has the ability, obviously, whether or not she can get her game in check. Uh, but yeah. you know that that level and the mentality um, to do it is there. I will add, just looking at the rankings, Stoser and Kuznetsov are both also outside top 20 right now. Yeah. And I could see either of them. I could, I could see either of them winning the French. It wouldn't give me a heart attack if that happened. No, not a heart attack. No, for sure. I mean, I, you know, I mean, Sam Stoser has been actually playing a bit better tennis. Ended uh, Angelique Kerber's 11-match win streak by serving right. 14 aces uh, this week with Madrid. She's peered, paired up uh, with uh, David Taylor once again, kind of sharing David Taylor with Isla Tomjanovic. So so maybe that is the recipe with the French Open coming up. We obviously know how good she can be on that surface. So, yeah, I mean, I, w- I would put Stozer ahead of Kuznetsova in terms of, of that. But t- uh, setting aside, like, players who have already won majors, I'd say my two-week zoner might have to go Pachinski. Okay. Barely outside the top 20. Barely outside the top 20. But, like, yeah, I don't know. There's kind of, like, a fearlessness with which she's been playing the tennis lately. Yeah, no, that's true. She definitely, and this seems to be not really thinking like wait this is too much too soon right. just sort of going with it so i, I would put her for sure yeah. like if it bro- like if the, the friend yeah, yeah. If the draw because you know the whole thing right like if a draw breaks open and somebody gets a chance to like make the run at that point it's no longer about skill it's about mentality yeah. and whether mentally you can do it we've seen this a gazillion times right like i don't know like stozer at the french open makes the you know kind of clears her own path makes the final and really uh kind of got locked up uh, against schiavoni we saw that again you know with bouchard or, or well bouchard just got straight up outplayed by petra so that's not really her fault um yeah. but you know like a Lisicki at wimbledon like right like paves her own way gets there and just completely blinks so in terms of mentality i think that if that situation happens to bachinski i think that she doesn't blink so it's it's kind of cool looking at the wta rankings how many players can are reasonable picks for this i mean like even someone like at 36 like a coco vandaway i could totally see her like a wimbledon jaw breaking open and coco blasting her way through in the sort of way lasicki did or um Pavs. Pavlyuchenkova has, is a very, very streaky player who hasn't had a streak at a major lately, but she did win two premier tournaments in 2014 and is ranked 41st right now. So her star can rise again. And when Pavs um, zones, she's she's kind of unplayable. Peak Pavs is great. Yeah, Peak Pavs yeah. is pretty is pretty crazy. I mean, it's... Sloan, Sloan can get things together. Sloan's had a great spring, and the losses she's taken have been really good in terms of losing her last three tournaments to Serena, Halep, and Serena. Right. Or I guess, and also Charleston in there to... Bartle. Bartle could also zone. Bartle's somebody who can be unplayable when peaking. I mean, I think WTA has more of those players who just, if everything clicks, could do big, big things. I, and it's just, I think that's what makes WTA so magical. Yes, but then at the same time, it's still it's still the mental side of things and whether or not people oh, are sure. like emotionally ready to do it. I mean, I think that um, <laughs> Bartle, no. Sloan, <laughs> not yet. Yeah, I mean, there's just going to be, you know, a bunch of that. But but on the men's side, you're right. I mean, like outside of the top 20, like you're getting into pretty, pretty tough. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a tough list outside of the top 20. But to zone, yeah. to zone. Depth isn't the same. In terms of that part of the rankings, it's not the same. I would say I would say Tomic. Tomic has that can if he stays healthy. He's had a lot of injuries lately, but if he can stay healthy, I could see him reeling off a of Wimbledon if a draw opens up a little bit. Or obviously, Curios is an obvious answer of how streaky he's been and how well he's played at the majors. Um, yeah, I mean, Curios is kind of actually a, a pretty good call. I mean, otherwise, you know, weirdly, Fanini is Fanini not top twenty? Yeah. Oh, Fanini he, could totally win the French. Yeah, Fanini could it, totally win weird the French. Year. Like, if he's got, 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 like, a pretty chill draw into, like, the fourth... Well, he won't because he's 
31. Uh, well, if he's well, anyways, but if he got kind of a chill draw and got himself into the quarterfinals into like a winnable match, you know, against like a top seed or something, you're like, who knows? He could do it. That sort of 25 through 32 range of the rankings is going to be the third round draws for the top seeds in France is tough. Mm-hmm. There's some good players in there who give some big trouble to a big four guy early on, like Fanini. Chardy's a good clay upsetter. Garcia Lopez. Kyrgios. Kyrgios. Sock. Yeah. Yeah. Sock is not quite there yet, but he's getting closer. Yeah. That's a tough, tough section. Like if someone like a Rafa gets Fanini third round. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That could so happen. Oh my gosh. Get ready. Yeah. Get ready. Get ready. Yeah. So I, I do hope something like that happens soon. That we get not like a, we don't need a total implosion of a tournament like when we'll get in with Bartoli, Lasicki in the final, but runs out of nowhere that have some basis i like it's part of what makes the whole sport worth playing true it's just yeah i mean (laughs) it's hard because i say that i i totally want to say i totally agree and then and then and then i think back to the u.s open (laughs) and what happened on the men's side and it's like oh that was not ideal i just think it was because there were two of them i think if you get one surprise finalist it's fine True. If they play well, and to be fair, like if if Nishikori had done what he should have done, which is won that match, it would have been a big story, legitimately. Yeah. I think that like I look back on the U.S. Open as being a bit more of kind of flat, just because it was unfortunately not unfortunately. Chilich is great. He's such a nice guy. So happy for him. But from like a just you know headline <laughs> or what does it mean for the sport? You know, uh, all of those sorts of questions. It, it wasn't exactly a result that fed into to anything or has really done anything for anyone ever since. <laughs> Speaking of headlines, one thing that got a lot of attention in this past week in sports was the fight between Floyd Mayweather and Manny Pacquiao. A lot of positive and negative attention, probably mostly negative, but I guess all publicity is good publicity for them on some level. Uh, made hundreds of millions of dollars for boxing for these two guys who never played each other, fought each other before, and the actual match itself was pretty terrible, but they each got a lot of money, and so there you go. And there was a whole, whole amount of hype around it in terms of boxing having like a big moment where it was the star sport for the week, and during you know playoffs for two sports, it was an impressive amount of spectacle they drove up, considering that boxing is so incredibly marginalized, and that these two guys both have their fair share of baggage especially Mayweather being a totally despicable human being on every level looking at that from the our tennis typical lens do you think there is something that tennis can learn or that can try to create for in terms of how boxing is successful I mean it's a one-on-one sport just like boxing but we don't really ever get real build-up in tennis like that almost ever I mean first of all boxing isn't healthy like no. it's, I mean, I'm talking as a sport, like yeah. as as a finance. I mean, a lot of the articles being written before uh, in the lead up to Mayweather Pacquiao was about how boxing was dying. Boxing is yep. effectively dead, and this one fight, people were hoping would save it. And yes, it generated a shitload of money, like just record-setting, obnoxious money. Floyd Mayweather walked out with like I think what what 200 million, 180, 180 million. Pacquiao obviously a big pocket as well. Vegas made tons and tons and tons of money um it's 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 insane but that doesn't mean that the sport 
as a whole is healthy. No one gives a shit about boxing today. Everybody seemed to care about it on Saturday and no one cares about it today. It's, can tennis replicate that moment? No, because we have our, we, our sport. We're lucky enough that, you know, we do get the two best players playing each other all the time. That's kind of the just how, you know, draws work and what happens when you have mandatory tournaments and you can't. And how they've worked lately, especially with the big guys winning all the time. Yeah. Well, I don't mean like the top guy. Like, I mean, like, but even just in the past and everything, like, that's how draws work is like you're going to see like the two. Chances are you're going to get see the two players that you want to see play each other, you know, a few times a year generally speaking. So obviously you're not going to have that situation of a buildup of like, oh, this has never this has never happened before. It's the fight of the century because it's only happened once. Like, yeah, it only happened once because Mayweather was dodging the fight and he didn't want to fight Pacquiao like years ago, back in 2009. Like, could you imagine if it was like Roger and Rafa and they were like both playing on separate tours or something? And yeah. like, they just like Roger just never wanted, not that Roger's Mayweather at all, but somebody has to be in this analogy. Um, but like one was just like kept being like, oh, no, like I don't want to play him effectively and dodging like that's so ridiculous and chicken shit. I'm sorry. Like, that is, like yeah. you're so weird boxing. It's not interesting to me. So, yeah, I mean, but yeah, obviously, does that hurt the fact that you can't get these big, massive moments, this big, massive hype? Sure. But at the end of the day, when you're walking down the street, if you see two people punching each other, you're going to stop what you're doing. You're going to see it. You watch walk down the street. You see two people hitting a tennis ball with each other. You're probably just going to keep walking. I mean, people punching each other in the face is just going to be inherently in a single moment, like so much more compelling because we're terrible human beings than two people hitting beautiful forehands. It's just going to be how it is. That's a fair and depressing point. I just wonder, like, is there something to be said for scarcity on any level? And I think that right now with ATP and all the mandatory tournaments they have, we're at the opposite of that right now. I mean, we get oversaturation. That's a very good point. Djokovic, Federer, Djokovic, Nadal, Nadal, Federer, less so, but still a fair amount. I mean, would bringing the supply down bring the demand up for tennis? I don't know. I, I haven't really thought about it too much, but I don't know how it would work with all the... I don't think anybody's going to be willing to be like... Rome will say like, yeah, you know, scarcity is good. We'll just sit out. Right. Year. I mean, the, no the, it, it's just not built that way. The point, I mean, the whole point of tennis these days is the fact that, you know, this 11 month calendar, basically, you know, we always complain about it on the podcast in December, right? If How can I miss you if you won't ever leave? Like, yeah. you know, it gets exhausting, right? Like you, you can't, like you can't build these moments. I think Eddie Roddick has said this a gazillion times back when he was playing. You can't build these moments. You can't get people excited about the sport if it's just always around. It just becomes white noise. Like, yeah. oh, Ro- you know, just like just now, like Roger Federer won a tournament. Anyways, moving on, moving ahead, you know, like it, it's not that big of a deal, you know, and and uh, and that is an inherent problem. I think even just with individual finals, we can't hype that much because we only really ever have maximum two days notice that a match. Exactly. Yeah. They had months for, ma- for Pacquiao brutal. Mayweather. You could build. Yeah. You can get all these deep dive pieces. You can get all these like cover stories and get all the hype you can do all you know we have like, like if we get a federer and all final at the french open we'll have two days yeah we have 48 hours plus the women's final in between right yeah yeah it doesn't work that way no and glad in general i'm very very glad that tennis is not boxing but yeah. i do think in some ways that in terms of scheduling and promotion it is almost the opposite extreme and so i mean because the, yeah. the, the mayweather pacquiao thing it does Obviously, this is a totally obvious thing. We're not, you know, this fight isn't breaking any news on this level. But scarcity is important, right? Like, if you feel like you're seeing something that's never happened before, obviously, that's going to be way more, you're going to get more eyeballs than something that's, like, always happened. So, like, why is Federer and Nadal, if they play on 
to me, any surface other than clay is like, eh. like uh, in the grand scheme of things, I don't really find it that compelling other than the actual tennis. But like story wise, I'm like, okay, it's it's hardcore, whatever. But when they play on clay, there is for me at least a little bit of like, is Roger going to beat him on clay? Is this the time? Like, you know, they could meet in the semifinals this week in Madrid. It, could Roger beat him? That would be kind of interesting whenever Serena and Venus play. Or more to the point, I guess, for surfaces with Federer and Nadal, the one comparable thing I can think of is when the battle of the surfaces happened back, like, remember that? With, like, eight years ago, and they had played on the half-grass, half-play court in Mallorca. It was dumb, but it was the closest thing we've ever had in tennis in my tennis consciousness to Mayweather-Pacquiao. I guess going back further, it is sad, but I think it's true in terms of having something have, like, hype and being, like, discussion point for weeks and weeks before it happened. A match. We have. I don't, know if I don't it's remember an exo, there but... being a ton of discussion about it. I just oh, remember it being was, like an was. exhibition that no one was like, okay. And the pictures were fine, but the court was absolutely shit, and they didn't really play play. No, it wasn't great, but it was it's still like a, a spectacle in a way that we haven't had in tennis. I think going back further since like the Battle of the Sexes or something. Yeah, that sort of gimmicky thing that tennis can't, should probably learn to do more with. And I guess like maybe the Madison Square Garden exhibition is a little bit similar but for people who are in the sport it's so unbelievably low stakes that who cares well i guess in some ways you know as much as i rag on it and don't like it i mean the iptl does step in on that way because at least because if you do the madison square garden exhibition it's like ooh, federer dimitrov dude that's like a quarterfinal match in brisbane or a semifinal match in brisbane that i saw three months ago why is this yeah. yeah why would I watch like why would I this isn't something that should be hyped like this is something that we see all the time but at least like with something like the IPTL that's something that we don't see right like you you build, start to build in or or world team tennis you start to build in these elements that at least make it different to where you're like you feel like you're seeing something that you can't normally see on the regular tour so in that way like yeah I can understand where people get like a little bit more excited about it but that's the thing about tennis exhibitions like at the end of the day they're not I mean how do you make a match gimmicky yeah, you know what know. I mean? Like, how do you yeah. make it like, oh, you've never seen this before. It's like, even if you take the best, like, scenario. Like that's like, more nonsense in Australia. Right. That was dumb. Yeah. I mean, maybe if it was like Roger, Rafa, Andy, and Novak playing doubles. Maybe, yeah. In an exhibition. But they were playing on a pond of lava or something. You know, it's something stupid. I'd pay for why? Yeah, I'd, I'd probably pay to watch that. Yeah. Or at least I'd fire up an illegal stream. There you go. <laughs> That's a good segue into our next topic. One of the things that happened in Mayweather Pacquiao, they got a lot of attention and it's gotten attention uh, with the rise of Periscope, the streaming live streaming app and program from the produced, I think in part by Twitter was uh, more focused on illegal streams, especially with Pe- Maniao. Uh, sorry, Maniao. Maniao is amazing. <laughs> Mayweather Pacquiao being, Maniao is such a better name for it's him. So much better. Uh, being a hundred dollar pay per view. <laughs> Remember when IPTL tried to charge like sixty dollars for a pay per view for the <laughs> please had the illegal streaming come up again, and it's been an issue. We with the mention you mentioned before the show, Courtney, with PGA kicking out a reporter for live streaming practice sessions. NHL similarly has cracked down on people streaming the national anthem before games, which usually isn't televised. I guess I don't know why anyone want to watch fire up a stream of the national anthem, but okay. Yeah, what what do you make of I guess illegal streaming as a as a problem or help or just in, let's meditate on the illegalness and streaming briefly. <laughs> illegal streaming, we all do it. I mean, we yeah. all. I mean, we don't talk about it because you probably shouldn't talk about <laughs> it. 
but not for like company now yeah but like to the extent that like if i can't get something on if tennis tv doesn't have something or if it's geo-blocked where i live you know then and not on live tv yeah, yeah. if it's not on you know it's not on live tv yeah I'll fire up the illegal stream because i gotta see what i gotta see to do my job and rights are not going to get in the way of that but yeah i mean i think that there's a bunch of just interesting things i mean the whole issue with periscope for those who don't know, yeah, it's a it's a, a program that allows you to stream stuff uh, via your phone, and it's deleted uh, a day later. So it's not like it sits. It's not like a YouTube situation where you film something and then it sits on YouTube for ever. It is replayable for twenty four hours. Yeah, it's replayable for twenty four hours. Okay. Yeah. So um and uh so that's kind of just a little bit of background on Periscope. You know, and and I know that like for when we go to tournaments um and our credentialed media, you know, there's a big long terms and conditions sheet that you have to supposed to read through and sign and usually those involve like yeah like you can't really you know I've I've had that talking to at tournaments where you know if I'm sitting there in my media seats and I take um some Instagram video of match point or of a racket smash or of just a serve right just a you know crowd reaction crowd reaction I mean you know you guys know Twitter and, and Instagram if anything it's like proof of life it's like yes I'm actually sitting here you know, this is how close I am to the action and I'm watching. Um, but I've had tournament people come to me and say, you know, you really can't do that because that that's um, those Some are, tournaments are super strict. Yeah, those are ATP rights. I usually get it from ATP. Um, those are ATP media rights. You can't, you know, they're going to crack down on it if they see it. So probably don't do that. Well, OK. You know, I mean, the whole issue is it, it, I just it, it goes with the, the GIF conversation, right? I mean, it's free advertisement. It's different from the GIF thing, especially with golf and maybe in the NHL example that you gave Ben, because these are things that aren't available on TV. Yeah. You know, it's not like you're taking it away from somebody like, you know, or you're duplicating work that's already being done. You're just adding. Yeah. You're just, you know, so that's kind of dumb. But if you can imagine like, you know, people started to fans started to use Periscope at tournaments to live stream of Roger, um, a Roger practice session. I mean, people love that stuff and people, you know, do record it and post it on YouTube it's still free advertising. Yeah. So I, you know, and especially when Periscope's actually even better because it, it, it it's not, it doesn't sit there in perpetuity. It, it's gone after 24 hours. So I don't know. I mean, it just seems like a, a, a waste of resources to go after. Yeah, I agree. Especially when it's something like a practice session that's really only for the super, super nerdy people who are probably going to be watching the official, some version of the real event when it comes on. You know, yep. so I, I don't say I think you're deepening the love more than scraping away at the product. And for certain sports, I mean, especially when you're talking NHL, golf, tennis, like we are not big four sports. You know, these are sports with very NHL is one of the four. It's one of the four, but it's the last of the four. It is definitely the last. Yeah, four, yeah. It, it, yeah. Isn't especially in America as opposed to yeah. Canada. So yeah, sure. I think that, you know, in that way, like the mentality should be a little bit more of like, let's get more eyes on a product right if yeah who would want to tune into a, a a national anthem being sung totally agree but what if somebody just randomly clicks on it's like wow like that is pretty amazing i want to go to a hockey game because the atmosphere seems phenomenal like there you go you got a potential you know customer on your hands for next season that that doesn't hurt you know or like within tennis i think that once the idea social media i think definitely helped with this once the idea kind of began to get circulated that practice courts were really fun 
that if you go to a tennis tournament, you get access to the practice courts, which is something that you don't get if you sit on your couch uh, watching everything on TV. And that is like a big reason or like, you know, autographs and selfies and all these sorts of things of like trying to get people out of the house and into your stands. Um, You know, that's all good stuff. Yeah, and I, I totally agree that internet has helped that. I feel like, especially like even like message boards, which were an earlier yeah. form of social media, were really into like, oh my god, you guys, I went to the practice courts and I totally saw like the Bondarenkos and it was so cool. That might be. I was gonna say, are, are you are you quoting your own uh, tennis forum post there? Maybe. <laughs> anyway, yeah, no, I, it is definitely something they should grow from, and I think embrace. But again, I understand. I understand the live concerns in terms of gifts and the copyrights there but this is non-rights covered stuff i would think in general yeah let it be and even like french open i completely disagree there's anything wrong with like taking an instagram photo from your seat in chatria and being like hey look at Djokovic, look at this crowd for Djokovic at all like i just don't think that's hurting and people seriously like they they are freaking like aggro about crowding oh, yeah. down like if you are sitting in the seats like at long lawn or like at the like the press seats anywhere and you just even like take a you just want to take a picture for your facebook page not to put on on instagram but to just tell your family hey like look at this great view i have or like whatever like i'm at the french open um like they will literally like pull you out of the, your seat and like threaten to decred you and guillotine you yeah it's that. it's nuts and it's it's too much and even just like at the French Open, there's um, uh, usually like this little band that plays out in front of Chatrier. Um, Who blocked the walkway. Yeah, that blocked the walkway. I'm like, what the fuck you people? Um, but but yeah, there's this band and they're actually really good and they're kind of fun. And I, every time they're playing, I always kind of stop and listen. And like, I always want to like take some video to post on my Instagram to be like, hey, this is kind of the vibe around the grounds here at Roland Garros. And I'm always freaked out because if you take video and you post it and you're not wearing one of those like whatever... Uh, khaki or orange vests again they can grab you and like throw you out it's just it's a little nutty i took a photo of a pigeon on the ground literally like a pigeon sitting on a fence looking chill i like instagrammed it from the french open it was on some side court but mm-hmm. like was no tennis action in the photo and someone's like oh my gosh you're gonna get the credential delete that pigeon i was like what? <laughs> it's, a, it's a pigeon it's yes. a pigeon you guys it's a pigeon so, so that's the lesson it's a pigeon yeah Next, we're going to share the conversation we had just earlier with Eric Buderak, who is not a pigeon. He is a mighty eagle of sorts atop the ATP player council, a double specialist who got a pretty unlikely spot at the top of uh, the ATP player council after years of diligent service and working behind the scenes. He was the one who succeeded Roger Federer starting last fall and has been with the tour for some pretty interesting times and interesting money negotiations and other tour issues. So, Courtney, I guess, what would you, this is the first time in a while we've done a joint interview with somebody. It's exciting in terms of on the phone for this. What would you say people should look for or pay attention to as they as they get to know Eric Buderak, who most people probably have not ever heard talk before? Yeah, no, I think that the, the best thing about Eric is just his candor. I, I yeah. You don't feel like he's being particularly political or party line um, in what he's saying. And I think that everything that he said just rang true to me. Like, you know, like you never know sometimes when you getting into kind of player politics and things like that and you ask different people different things and everybody has their own agenda that they're trying to push forward and to me it, it just really got, I, I got the sense walking away from the interview that Eric really was about kind of representing everyone wanting to do like the right thing 
for everyone. Um, high, you know, top ranked players, low ranked players, doubles players, singles players, and that he un- and he's intelligent and he understands the issues that are involved. So, um, yeah, I thought it was a very very interesting conversation and and very enlightening. And I think that the ATP Players Council is in pretty darn good hands with Eric Buderak. That's what I was gonna say. I mean, for someone to re- be picked to replace Federer with his limited stature or profile in the sport, being a fairly unknown guy, uh, means he must be doing something right. Yeah. So here's Eric Buderak with us talking about all things ATP. Very excited to be joined by Eric Buderak, who is the ATP Player Council president and still an active doubles player on tour from the beautiful state of Minnesota. Hi, Eric. How are you doing? I'm doing excellent. Um, great to be on here. Thanks for thanks for being here. So I guess we wanted to introduce people to you a little bit because your story is probably one of the less likely ones on tour, I think, in terms of where your tennis started and what it's sort of where it's taken you in your life. So you want to give a, a Cliff Notes version of how you got to be where you are? Feel free to as much or as little detail as you want. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a bit rare. I mean, I think the, the fun thing actually about American tennis right now is that we actually have a lot of players from all different backgrounds, you know, Sock growing up in Nebraska and Isner growing up in North Carolina and, you know, just, just two examples. Um, but yeah, I grew up in Minnesota, uh, went to a division three school called Gustavus Adolphus college. Um, not all that well known in the international tennis world, but was a good, uh, D three tennis school there. I met a coach named Steve Wilkinson who really changed my perspectives on how to how to train how to get better at tennis how to be a better person and um after winning the ncaa title i decided to move to france spent about two to three years basing myself out of france playing a lot of money tournaments sleeping on park benches sleeping on clubhouse floors kind of however i could scrape by eating pasta with ketchup on a regular basis um yeah it wasn't it wasn't the prettiest of times it was also a really great life experience for me um i'd never left the country before so living over in europe for the first time was was really interesting and after a, a couple of years of really grinding it out and, and and progressing up the rankings i found myself a career in the in the world of pro doubles and, and focused on that and i think it was about three three to four years after i finished college when i started playing grand slams and um never looked back so how I guess, how did you get into the sort of more player council side of it? When did being a player who's sort of struggling to get a firm foothold on the ladder, as it were, become someone, you know, arguably at the top of one of the sports ladders in terms of leading all these player issues? Um, So the player council was was brought to my attention, like, maybe my first or second year on tour, I was pretty new um, to the whole experience. And an older player nominated me for, for the council. I didn't really even know what it was, but he said, hey, you're one of the few guys I know here with a college degree. You seem reasonably intelligent. And I think this is something you should do. Um, I had never thought I'd get elected. I didn't even think I knew enough players on tour who would actually vote for me to, to ever get <laughs> in. But sure enough, I, I did get elected. And you know, from that point forward, I took it very seriously. I, I took it as a badge of honor. And um, I was lucky enough to start uh, with Novak, Roger, and Rafa, who were all get, also got nominated to their first term on, on the player council. So it was it was an exciting time. We had 10 new guys. We were really looking to take the sport forward. Um, and I was sitting in a room with you know, three of the biggest stars in the, in the history of our sport. So um, for me, I, I think I sat for probably about a year. And I don't think I said a word in, in, in any single meeting, <laughs> just being so intimidated by these, by these guys. And I remember there's a specific story where we 
were trying to figure out whether or not we wanted to have the blue clay in Madrid. <laughs> right, sure. And and, and um, the CEO at the time, Adam Helfand, was looking around the room, and we were we'd been debating it a little bit. And he said, "All right, guys, we need to make a decision right now. I want to go around the room. Everyone gets one sentence: blue clay, yes or no." And he turns his left and looks right at me, and I'm like, "Oh crap!" <laughs> <laughs> I said, "I said, well, if it if it looks better on television, and they say it plays the same as red clay, like I think we should try it." And then, of course, next is Rafa. And as we all know, Rafa stands in the blue clay. He said, you know, this is horrible. You know, there's no <laughs> chance we can play on it. I vote no. And I was like, all right. And then Novak goes, absolutely not. I tried it last year. It's the worst surface. Like, I will co consider boycotting the tournament. And then Roger goes next. And he goes, yeah, I think I think blue clay is a good idea. And then we'll bring out the elephants and the giraffes. And we'll have a circus on the court. <laughs> <laughs> I think at that point I wanted to crawl under the table and die. Like, I just, I just, but it, when, when you start at that point, I figure like, you know, it can only get better. And, and that was for me, that was my like, all right, you know, I've got to take this very seriously. I've got to learn a lot and I've got to, you know, help represent, you know, my, my constituents to, uh, to the best of my abilities. And I've been on there now for seven years and, and uh, learned a ton, made a great, a lot of the great relationships. And, and I feel like the sport is in such a better place than it was seven years ago when I started. Was the business aspect of things as, uh, I mean, was that particularly eye-opening to you? How much is it that the players that are on the player council, the concept of like the business of tennis is so much more kind of on your minds than, you know, tour players who they just go to the tournaments they play. They don't have to worry about, you know, yeah, what tennis is going to look like in 10 years, how to build the sport, how to drive it. I mean, what was the most surprising thing for you when it came to, to joining the player council and just kind of hearing some of the conversations with respect to, to the sport and, and kind of the money side of things. Yeah, it's, it's very eye-opening. I mean, as, as a player, you think that you have a good grasp of, of what's going on at, at a particular event, but in, in the reality, you know, you do just arrive on a Saturday and this entire event has been put together and you play your matches and then you move on and, you know, seven days later, you're, later you're walking into a new event. Um, you know, that being said, the more we could get our players to understand, you know, you know, their value being the talent, but how that interacts closely with, you know, the promoters and the tournament directors and all that they do. Um, it's really helpful in kind of moving us, moving us forward together. Since joining the tour seven years ago, I think I personally was able to learn so much about the business side of things. Um, and I just think it's important for all of our players to understand uh, all that goes into a specific tennis tournament. I mean, we often arrive the weekend before, we, we play our matches, and then we move on to the next event, which is magically appeared and is ready yeah. to go by the time we arrive. So I think it's it's great for the more members that we can get involved on the council to understand that and help communicate that to players and, and understand what all is going on and, and what our role is in this entire tennis business. For me personally, it's been really interesting to, to figure out which players it is really want to know a lot about what's going on. And then there's other players out there who have come to me and said, you know, look, I have no interest in this business. You know, please, you make decisions for me, but I promise promise to you that you know i will never complain you know when 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 that time comes you know the the ones that yeah. are frustrating are the ones who you know don't want to be you know answer questions or ask their opinions but then after a decision is made you know then then they voice you know how they felt <laughs> but that would be but, frustrating yes <laughs> yeah but that's a lot of what my job is you know managing relationships um trying to understand what a few hundred players from you know 50 different countries and different tax brackets and trying to get everybody on the same page <laughs> so yeah 
definitely. Would you say there's yeah. one thing that's been the most sort of eye-opening, like the one thing that before you sort of pulled back the curtain, you had no idea was as important to sustaining uh, the organism of the ATP that you didn't know about before? Hmm, that's a good question. I guess it's 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 always in you know, ever ever evolving, but I think. Um... You know, the, the prize money has been a, a huge topic, and obviously, you know, having players understand their value and, and what they bring to events is really important. Um, schedule is is always something that we're always dealing with and looking at which events here or there. I think that the trickiest thing with tennis is that there's so many different organizations involved, and I had no idea that, like, all right, the, the ITF owns Davis Cup, and they're going to try to weave their Davis Cup throughout this calendar. And then the Grand Slams are just, like, four huge elephants which like they cannot move and they are stuck and they're not going to alter for anyone and then you've got the atp which is like trying to build swings of tournaments like throughout all of this and then throw on special events like bupati creating his his asian tennis league at the end of the year or world team tennis trying to fit in the middle of summer and it's just like the time you start to fill up a calendar you're just like it's like overwhelming to understand how many different organizations how many different interests and then trying to get everybody on some sort of same page i think it's so different than like if the nfl wants to do something they're like here's our schedule here's our calendar you players are all employees you know you have no say this is how many games we're going to play and just here's your schedule go and whereas we're like there's so many different things in the mix, which is interesting for tennis, but also can be very difficult to, to make any drastic changes or really to move things around. Do you think that there would ever be a time, even if we're talking 20 years, 30 years down the road, where we would just have a commissioner of tennis, where all of this, all this alphabet soup of different organizations would just kind of go away, we'd be more, tennis would be more kind of uniform and singular in voice and action, or is just the tradition of this sport, just it, it's just stuck the way that it is? I don't even think it's tradition as much as it is just like pure ownership, you know, like the, yeah. the, the USDA owns the US Open, you know, Wimbledon is their own tournament. Like, I don't think that anyone is going to give up their rights. And we've seen it even with like Davis Cup, which has been something that like, you know, last year with Federer playing in the final, it's so exciting. And then this year it's like, all right, they're not even going to, you know, Switzerland isn't even going to put their top two players out. And it's like players hate Davis Cup or they love Davis Cup. We don't even know what's going on with Davis yeah. Cup. It's just like, <laughs> but yet when we approach the ITF and be like, hey, can we kind of reshuffle this or reorganize it? They're like, uh, absolutely not. So <laughs> it's like, that's just one little idea. I don't see how we're ever going to get anyone to really give up control of it is what, you know, of what it is they have. Right. So I think it's it's unlikely, but I mean, certainly the sport would move with more fluidity if you had, you know, one person in control. I doubt that I'm going to see that in my lifetime. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would tend to agree with that. So you, you became council president in at the U.S. Open, I guess, right before the U.S. Open, you were voted in. Yes. Um, what I guess what has been the biggest challenge, I guess, for you, sort of taking the helm, especially following in Federer's footsteps, because obviously you two have very different profiles on the tour and but at the same time different strengths and weaknesses and things that you're maybe able to do or spend time on that he mm -hmm. wasn't i mean yeah I, I knew right away that 
you know, he's never going to have his name power, his ability to have influence in the media, uh, things like that. Um, you know, what I did know is that I would have more time to to spend on this than he is just being pulled in many different directions. I also knew that I would be much more accessible to players. And that's not that Roger isn't accessible, but I think people sometimes just don't want to bring to him their what appear what might appear like a minute problem in his eyes. Um, whereas I think with me, they feel much more comfortable. Um so, you know, I, I voiced that and people, players have taken advantage of that, which is which is great. You know, that I think that even if it's a lower ranked doubles player who's concerned about how the entry cut is working at a challenger event, they pick up the phone and call me. And, and that's good. And I think that, you know, these players need to be heard. And my guess is the player wouldn't make that same call to Federer or couldn't even necessarily get access to him. Um, <laughs> so so that's been that's been maybe more than I expected. I didn't know that so many players would, would you know, reach out to me and communicate, but it's also been good. Um, and then I think the thing that's been most challenging for me is to make sure that I understand all the needs and the um, kind of demands of the, the higher ranked players. I think that, you know, Roger working as his vice president, we were a great balance and that I understand more of the working class role on tour. And, you know, he's at the pinnacle of the game. And now that I'm the president, I think I need to make sure that I understand what those top five guys or top 10 guys, what their concerns are. And so that's on me to communicate with Roger Rafa, Novak, you know, Andy, Ferrer, all these guys to make sure that I'm not making a decision that, you know, I think that they will like, but actually, you know what? Oh, shoot, all that extra prize money they got, it actually isn't worth the extra commitment that we put on them. And, and I, I wouldn't have understood that, but I need to make sure that I do. So um, I guess that, that challenge is, has, has kind of been readily apparent, but it's also been one that I've tried to embrace. What about the balance as well? I mean, you were talking about needing to kind of balance the top player interests versus kind of the, the lower ranked player interests. And then um, between singles and doubles is also going to be a, a topic of conversation. We get um, quite a few questions almost, you know, weekly about kind of the status of ATP doubles. Why can't they stream? Why can't, you know, this and that and, and a lot of complaints from people who, who genuinely love that side of the game. So um, do you think that like, or have you found that your experience as a doubles player has helped kind of shape that conversation within the Players' Council. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get started too much on streaming. I think Ben knows exactly how I feel on that one. I, I, we're, you know, as players, we're very passionate that we we want to get as much tennis content out to the market as possible. Um, we've been really frustrated that we haven't been able to get more of it out there. And that's not just doubles. That's that's first round singles matches. That's second round singles matches at smaller tournaments. There's a, there's a lot of great tennis matches that aren't being produced or are available to stream. I think it's more what we're trying to do is trying to figure out how we can grow the game to the greatest of our abilities and now the the trick is trying to find a number of how many players we think we should that, that, that should be making a living how can we take care of that group how can we make sure that you know players are getting the opportunity to get into that group that's been a lot of the discussions over the last year i mean people have seen how we're trying to drive a little bit more prize money especially grand slams events um into the earlier rounds uh challengers have essentially doubled their prize money over the last 10 years which is which is a good step in the right direction you know it's it's a it's a sports entertainment model that's it's that's tricky because we are a very top heavy sport and so i guess the you know being being where i'm at i, I feel like i have a pretty pretty unbiased view of, of where i think we should head and, and have been able to help guide those discussions in terms of the discussions that have happened recently with 
all the double of the money increases, um, especially at the Masters, obviously the big mm-hmm. increase he won last fall, which I guess got a little contentious afterwards with the tournament saying they mm-hmm. felt like they had been swindled somehow through that. Do, do you think that all this money is, I guess, sustainable and that tennis should keep growing and growing and growing right now? Or do you have to keep a eye on the fact that you are in a quote-unquote golden era right now and have to keep things also uh, sustainable for the long term so there's any sort of bubble that bursts after yeah. Federer and Nadal, whoever leave? No, I understand. Um, I think with with the Masters negotiations, we, you know, the, the numbers that we were presented with, you know, kind of what, what tournaments we're making, what, the, what what TV numbers we're doing, we felt that what we asked for was was more than fair. Um, as, as players, we've always said we don't want to ever compromise these events. And we were, are happy taking some sort of revenue sharing model or some, some sort of some sort of. Um, yeah, either discuss either whether it involves television money or other types of of, of income. If we, we we want to share in the in the in the great success that's been happening over the last you know ten years, but also if the sport doesn't go the way that we think it's going, we don't want to put the tournaments in a situation where they can't continue to go on. So we were very clear with that. You know, they they decided that they wanted the best way to go forward would be just on straight prize money increases, not opening up the books and allowing us to share in the revenue, which is which is okay. So we, you know, present a number that we thought and we didn't actually get that number. We got we got something fairly close. And if in four years, you know, the tournaments are struggling and we don't we aren't in the place that we thought we'd be in, we absolutely don't want to push forward with more prize money increases. We you know we'll 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 readdress that in four years and, and make sure that our sport is in a good place, you know, for the for the years to come. How much of that is part of the conversation these days, Eric, about, you know, what is the ATP gonna look like in five years, in ten years, that sort of thing and, and whether or not certain decisions have to be made now to uh, you know, take that into account or do we just not take it into account because, you know, the ATP is strong and it's thriving and as a, a, a total product, it's still, you know, going to be just as good in five years and 10 years as it is now. I mean, it, are there concerns about this whole, yeah, golden era issue outside of just tournament prize money and things like that? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's a concern, but I don't know that it's one that's, you know, dwelled on day in and day out. I mean, when, 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 when you have a guy like Roger, who's a once in a lifetime type guy, I mean, we, uh, sure the, the sport's going to take a bit of a hit when, when he steps down, which at this pace is never. So that's a good thing for us. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, the, I think it's also the responsibility of the ATP to start focusing on some of our next generation stars, you know, guys like Haney Shakori, Milos Maronich, Gregor Dimitrov. Are, are, are three names that always get kicked around and I know that they're doing a really really focused job you know kind of getting the world ready for these guys as they take over take over the sport from the 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 Nadal Federer Djokovic's of the world um and I think it's part of the responsibility is on those guys to to learn how to become great ambassadors for a game how to become great stars and how to handle the you know how to they basically carry the torch on, you know, for for the next generation. How how much of a challenge would you say it's been not having an American in the in the top ten for most of the last five years? I guess conservatively. I, 
Yeah, I mean, globally, the sport is doing fine. You know, as, as you guys know, when you go to the different Grand Slams, the, the sport is doing well. Um, it's it's really hurt us domestically, but also America is just the, the leader of the way when it comes to television revenue. And if, sport, if a sport is big in America, it really, you know, helps carry the rest of the world. So um, it's hurt. It's 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 been tough. Um, you know, but I think the, the just the global standard has gotten so strong and you know 50 years ago we didn't have players from japan or bulgaria in the top 10 you know they just there was there was no one at that level um from 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 those countries so it's 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 a it's a it's a difficult era maybe for for men's tennis in the united states but hopefully there's a, a new generation coming just around the corner i mean sock has started to really turn things on this year i mean he, he had a great win over Andujar on on clay today after mm-hmm. winning houston you know this francis tfo is is really young and shows that he's winning a lot of close matches on the challenger level um i don't think people should look for you know a grand slam champion you know this year from the united states necessarily <laughs> but but hopefully you know as the next generation gets older um hopefully we'll have a couple players really rise to the top and eric where where exactly just so that our listeners kind of get a better idea of it where exactly do you uh does tennis feel the crunch with respect to a lack of like an american star is it in like tv deals is it in you know u.s tournaments like where is where is the crunch being felt from a practical perspective well, I would say the biggest crunch on the professional tour is at the lower level U.S. events. Um, I would say that the biggest tournaments, I mean, the U.S. Open, you know, and even the Masters Series, Indian Wells, Cincinnati are doing fine. Um, you know, the international stars really carry those events. The, those those events are thriving, regardless of who's playing in them. Um, I think you know tournaments like Los Angeles and San Jose. Um, Indianapolis that were like really like stalwarts of American tennis are now gone because you know fans of those tournaments were used to seeing Sampras and Agassi or McEnroe and Connors battle in the finals of those events and you know when it came to watching Isner versus Query they just weren't as excited and and understandably so it's like you're comparing two of the the best players of a generation versus the one and two Americans at the time which were ranked you know 17 and 35 Um, so it's just it's hard to sustain those events with that then the trickle-down effect goes to well if tennis is getting less publicity on the SP then there's less kids maybe who are interested in playing tennis you know and, and all the way down into you know our developmental system so it's there's there's definitely a, a huge effect and 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 hopefully that will that will change soon one sort of back, back to the prize money briefly one issue that i wanted to just have you discuss on here because i thought your thoughts on it were interesting when we've talked on it in the past is on equal prize money and i guess what sort of a priority or not you think that should be for the atp and for the player council especially because some of the more outspoken people about it in terms of Sergei Sikovsky, Jill Simona gets now the vice president of the council are on the council. Um, is that, do you feel like that should be a, a moot issue at this point or how do how do you see that as a, this always seems like a kind of a bit of a, I don't know, a haze when it comes to prize money discussions about that. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we've come to a good place um, with, with equal prize money you know, at, at all the grand slams and, and even a couple of, of the master series events. Um, to be honest with, with our council, it's talked about very little. Um, I think our, we're pretty laser focused with just the, what we can do with the ATP tour, um, how we can grow our events, how we can create, you know, new events on our, on our schedule and, and make them the best possible events. Um, that being said, a lot of our events, if the venue is big, 
big enough and can handle it, then they are combined events, and those are some of the most successful ones. So you know, they're, they're, there's different deals with with some of the events. There's you know some are combined, some are combined not equal prize money, some are combined equal prize money. Um, but I think we're at, we're at a good place, which is which is keeping both men's and women's women's tennis very healthy. Do you think that's pretty much here to stay in terms of equal prize money? I mean, it hasn't been there that long, really, in terms of having you know a lot of combined events having it. I mean, you would have to have to ask the, the like the Grand Slams, who are sort of the stalwarts of, of equal prize money. But I, I don't think anything is going to change in the near future. And you know, we're we're at, we're at a stage where, where men's tennis is is a, is a bit more popular than women's tennis. But as we spoke about earlier, we're in we're in our golden era, and, and maybe as women's tennis and you know, some of the younger stars come to thrive, maybe there'll be a, a time just around the corner where women's tennis really carries the 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 bulk of of pro tennis. So it, it kind of remains to be seen. Very cool. Right, cool. Well, thank you very much uh, for being with us here, Eric. This was awesome. Absolutely, guys. Love your work. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you very much, Eric. And thank you guys all for listening to us here this week. If you want to follow us when you're not listening, you can do so by liking us on Facebook, facebook.com slash NCR podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis. You can also follow our individual Twitter accounts at 40 Deuce Twits for Courtney and at Ben Rothenberg for me, Ben Rothenberg, creatively. You can also subscribe to us on your RSS feed or podcasting app of choice and get new episodes delivered automatically to wherever, including iTunes. And if you're on iTunes, you can leave us reviews. If you have questions for an upcoming show, uh, we'd love to have questions going forward. Always the more the merrier. You can send those to us on Twitter or you can email us, no challenges remaining at gmail.com we're going to wrap up with our rant rave segment courtney you want to bet first or second here i'll bet second okay go for it ben mine is mine is brief i have just been very much enamored with the third season of amy schumer inside amy schumer which is only like two episodes old but there have been so many phenomenal things in it especially for me the sketch in the last week's episode that was like a one direction parody spoke so clearly to my heart <laughs> like it was so it was wonderfully so dead detailed. On. it was so dead on like it sounded exactly like what, what makes you beautiful and the message of it really just struck a, a great power chord with me because all those songs and one direction did it with what's make you beautiful oh that's what makes you beautiful whatever and this was sort of the first when this whole genre of like bruno mars and ed sheeran especially i just find reprehensible with all his like it's okay old lady you're not but he like he has this weird way of singing to like middle-aged women that i just as considering he's like 23 i find creepy he's like maybe that's age maybe that's ages he's like the new john mayer but he's like doesn't matter if you're wrinkled i still love you and it's like what 23 year old is singing to a wrinkled lady (laughs) (laughs) i i just find it creepy he wrote the one direction song little things which is their grossest in that direction and so yay amy schumer that sketch the sketch with tina fey and julie louis dreyfus and patricia arquette was great the one so i don't think we have the friday night lights one was amazing it's been a lot of good stuff and so i'm very much looking forward to the remaining seven or eight episodes left this season very nice well we have well i have a rant but okay not surprisingly our rant rave segment to this episode is like really feministy. I'll use the F word. Um, so my rant is about age of Ultron, but not really like about age of Ultron. So, th- and this is spoiler free. I'm not going to give away if you haven't seen uh, the new Avengers movie, which came out on Friday, 
and you weren't standing in line as I was on a Friday night at 10 p.m. with a bunch of other nerds um, nice. uh, to watch it in, on the opening, then, you know, don't worry, I'm not going to spoil anything. But there's been a lot of, not a lot of, but there's been some backlash to the movie, which was great. I loved it. It's not perfect, um, but it's, I thought, I think actually better than the first one, but I need to see it again to really get my hands okay. around it. Um, but there's been a lot of backlash or criticism of the movie, and in particular of Joss Whedon, who was the director and writer of the movie. He also uh, is obviously the creator and director and writer for Buffy back in the day. Um, so we know that Joss knows how to write strong women, and Joss is like a feminist. Like, he is. He's said it himself. He's, like, called out Gamergate. He's done, like, I mean, it's never been a question. Until now, apparently, because um, there have been a few think pieces written criticizing the way that Scarlett Johansson's character, Black Widow, Natasha Romanoff, is uh, what her arc is in Age of Ultron. And so just setting that aside, um, I disagree with it entirely. Um, I've tweeted links to pieces that pretty much encapsulate why I disagree with this like feminist backlash, because I think that it's a very reductive and narrow re reading of her character. But I think this speaks broader to... Um, not about Joss Whedon, although he's now like quit Twitter because like of not necessarily because of, but people speculated because of all of the death threats he got because of how he he wrote never fun the Black Widow character, which is super weird. Like, why are people getting pissed off about this? Anyways, um, this is though what happens when you Marvel or DC, any of the comic book movies or comic book franchises, don't put enough women on screen. Like if you what happens and this is not just in superhero movies, this is in like any f depiction of women um, in on, on TV or in movies that like men are allowed to be like all these different um, types of characters because there's like so many men care. There's so many male characters and everything. Right. So like, you know, like you can have a, a Don Draper represent a certain type of man. You can have a, a Walt from Breaking Bad represent a certain kind of man. Tony, uh, Tony Soprano represent a certain type of man, et cetera, et cetera. Um, because you have the diversity because you have so many roles. What happens is like, if you have like so few roles for women, lead roles um, or major roles, then like women look on screen and they expect that woman to be everything in a single character because there aren't enough, there isn't a, enough women representing different types of women on TV. Sure. So there's like this incredible backlash. And I think that that's a little bit of what's happening to Black Widow. Like she, like people want her to be something and that's not what she is, but what she is is not unfeminist and the way that she's been written is not unfeminist, but because she just falls just a little bit short and there are no other rep no other female um superheroes in the standalone superheroes, I guess. Not she's not a superhero though. She's just human. Um but world savers. Um okay. <laughs> uh in like the Marvel universe. Um I guess Electra, Catwoman, Catwoman's DC, but anyways, they're just not a lot. So Everything's kind of heaped on her and it's just lame, but it is a broader problem with like kind of comic book movies. And hopefully that changes in the future. I mean, she's still, you know, there was all this talk about why is there, you know, you can get Captain America, you can get Thor, you can get Incredible Hulk um, and you can get Iron Man uh, toys and like, you know, kid T-shirts and stuff like that. But there wasn't actually a ton of Black Widow uh, merchandising which was a big criticism levied at the uh, doorstep of Marvel over the weekend. And all of those are legit concerns. But with specifically to the movie, it just really, really pissed me off to like read all of these feminist rants 
um, saying how like Joss Whedon like w- was totally misogynistic in his writing of Black Widow. And it's just like, no, you're just dumb. Like you just actually don't understand her arc and who she is and who she is as a woman and all these sorts of things. So I just was really annoyed by it all weekend and it really pissed me off. And it chased one of the best tweeters off Twitter. And Joss so is a think... god. So among there the nerds. Go. But what? Go ahead. <laughs> so you, I guess you think that the solution is that there are just not enough female characters. Yeah. In that. And so that basically this woman would have been an unobjectionable character had there been a greater number of women surrounding her, but she had to be all things to all women. Yeah, basically. Right. Like, because okay. if you're, if, 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 if you have like 10 women who are superheroes and they're all flawed, it's somehow on some level, it's somehow more palatable than if you have one and she just has a minor flaw. And I don't think it's a flaw, but it, people see it as a flaw. It's a flaw, but There's a pressure to be you know perfect when you're a token. Exactly. It's always yeah. that way. I mean, you see that, I mean, with like, you know, the, yeah, I mean, there's just a lot. You see that a lot with a lot of different, like with Amy Schumer, you see some of the backlash against her as well because she's one of the few kind of like very bold female comics in the way that she speaks and in the, the, the sketches that she writes. She gets ripped for it. Lena Dunham, the same thing because people think like girls is terrible because it's like, no, those are just certain types of girls. Like, and it sucks because you hate it because there's just not enough representation of different types of women on TV. And that this is just the one representation pisses you off. Um, you know, you see some of it with, well, Broad City's pretty universally loved, but to the extent that there is criticism, it's a little bit of that. Like, why are these women stoners? And they're so, like, you know, unmotivated, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, because some women are. Like, that's not unfeminist to represent that, you know? So, anyways, that was, anyways, it just, it really annoyed me. Well, I know you liked the Scarlett Johansson sketch, though. I know, because it was, it was very tongue-in-cheek on SNL. They did this whole... Like Marvel, we know girls. Like Black Widow standalone movie trailer, where they basically turn uh, the the Black Widow standalone movie that doesn't exist and doesn't I think it won't exist in the future. Um, they turn it into like a, ro- a rom com, so it was very very amusing. And uh, yeah, so there you go. So there you all go. Thank you very much for listening to episode one hundred three. We will be back with you. I guess when I'm in Rome, yeesh soon and you're over here we'll be together again soon though in paris but for the meantime talk to you later courtney bye see ya hold up girl we spoke too soon with this whole no makeup tune kind of changed our mind on the makeup thing you'll be the hottest girl in the nation with just a touch of foundation girl i can't be seen with the ghost from the rain i didn't know your lashes were so stubby and pale Just a little mascara And you're the female Please listen girl What we're trying to say Just get up an hour earlier And you can make yourself much girlier Girl, much girlier